0: tonight in a text by way of a, a dear saint of God that used to go here for a little while with us and has moved that she always appreciated and she never saw someone slow the Lord's Supper down like that before and how it ministered to her. And uh, so I believe it's the right thing for us to do and uh, especially at this time of year <clears throat> because what happens as you know, the moment we go out the door, things are going to start really clicking. And they don't stop. You think, well, New Year's, oh, we can all breathe. It seems to me it just keeps cranking and cranking. And uh, what I like to do at this time, if you can envision with me just for a second before I read the scriptures, is I like to try to throw the boat anchor out with the big old chain on it and just try to bring that thing to a screeching halt so we can take a look at the Lord who He really is and how we need to draw closer to Him at this time. Because the tendency for us is to get going so fast, we stop spending the time that we need to with Him. And I think if, if we just take a little bit of extra time, slow it down, get focused on the right things, I think it'll help us going into this, uh, what the world would call your holiday season. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 15 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Go back one, cha- one book to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with me, if you would, and look at verse 21. I'd like to push off with these two verses tonight. Verse 21, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians. The Bible says, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Brother Brian, would you ask the Lord's help on the preaching tonight? Amen. Now, here in our text, our opening text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul says it were to stand fast and to hold on to some traditions that Paul had taught them. I find that's an interesting verse of scripture. And the reason I think it's an interesting verse of scripture is because the connotation that we often put on that word tradition, the word tradition. Uh, the truth is this not all traditions are bad. Actually, you have a number of traditions in your home that are not all bad, but they're not all good, right? You have holiday traditions. You have family traditions. You have whatever, your daily routine, which is tradition, right? It's just something you've always done. And I think, I think Bible believers, they tend to get overly wound up over the word tradition. It's a reactionary thing. I see it as a reactionary thing. Uh, Often you hear the word tradition and uh, leave it to a good, spirit-filled, soul-winning, track-passing-out, devil-hating, sin-kicking Bible believer to get wound up over the word tradition. That's who we are. We are men and women of extreme. And we often react to what we see. We react to what we hear because we know the Roman Catholic Church has wrong traditions, then we therefore ascribe every tradition as something that must be out of the pits of hell. But that's not the case. There's some very good traditions. And I know what I'm saying will border on the line of heresies to some stuffed shirt, pious, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, legalist Christian, but I'm not too worried about that. I'm here to try to help you out tonight, amen? I want to give you some things about some traditions that are just worth holding on to. Some traditions. Now, the text of that verse says that Paul had either preached them, he had taught them, or he had written them, uh, either by word or by our epistle. Uh, so, you know Paul. Paul led by example. Best way to lead in the world. He didn't say, do what I say. Uh, he just said, watch what I do and do the same thing, which thou hast seen and heard of me. But not all tradition is bad, amen? You know what a good tradition is? This isn't the message, this is just uh, introductory stuff. An altar call is a good tradition. You know what we should never get rid of? An altar call. You have to attend a church because you go somewhere, or you move on with life, and you move away from this uh, little old town that most people have a magnet in their backside for, amen? You attend a church with no altar call, that's not a good sign. I'm not saying you can't get fed there. I'm not saying you can't have fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ. But that is a tradition that you should not let go of. Amen. When you hear the Word of God preach, you ought to be able to do something about it. Well, I could do something in my chair. Yeah, but you won't. You see what I mean? Ultra call puts pressure on an individual to make a decision as to what, they've done, what they're going to do with what they heard. That's a good tradition. You know what another tradition is? Congregational singing of the old-time hymns. The older, the better. You're learning something about your Christianity. The Christianity that you have and that your generation have isn't worth a whole lot. Don't get me wrong when I say that. But it's with the old-timers and the old saints. They really had a hold of something. And if you want the old-time religion, how many of you heard that saying before? Give me that old-time. But then you're going to have to go to the old paths, aren't you? And that's the old path of preaching. That's the old pass of praying. Amen. That's the old pass of purity. That's the old path of separation, right? You don't get rid of the altar call. You don't put psychology in your preaching. You don't get rid of the congregational singing. You don't get rid of the hymn books. You don't get rid of your Bible. Uh I, I don't care if you put screens up because face it, you know. If it's like super large print, do they even make a large print hymnal? They ought to. That thing would probably be about 100 bucks a piece or something. You know, I have a hard time reading my Bible and my notes with my glasses. But don't get rid of why. That's just good tradition. It works. And Paul said, hold fast that which is good. If it works, why why get rid of it? You know what the old man used to say? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) That's just good stuff. (laughs) And uh, at the end of the day, what you need to understand, uh, here's another good tradition. Sunday school is a good tradition. You can't find it in the Bible, (laughs) but it's a great tradition. You know what Sunday school was originally started for? To teach young people how to read. Ain't that something? (laughs) That's a good tradition. But you know the only time traditions become wrong is when they cause you to reject the Word of God. Mark chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus Christ says, And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. So the only time a tradition becomes bad is when it causes you to reject God's commandments, or that tradition then becomes more important than God's commands. But at the end of the day, Paul says, Look, there are some traditions that I have taught you by my own example by my own preaching, and through epistles that I have written. And they're good, they're important, and you know what? They're just worth hanging on to. You see a lot of things going by the wayside in this country these days. You're you're watching morality go by the wayside. You're watching uh, gender, as you and I know it, it's going by the wayside. You're watching anyone that has anything to do with principles and right or wrong, it's just evaporating. You're seeing the absolute deterioration of society. You're seeing chaos now being the norm. You're seeing a time and place where uh, uh, we were raised as children to behave. We were raised to respect. We were raised to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, and no, sir. And if we were told to do something, it was right away, sir, or right away, ma'am, or whatever it was. That's all gone by the wayside. I'm saying there are some traditions we're going to look at from the Bible, and I'm, I'm not going to go too long tonight, but they're just worth hanging on to why Paul said hang on to them. He says hold fast, hold fast. I'll just jump right into it. i just like to preach this a little bit. Can I just give you this, uh, this one to start out? Uh, first of all, how about the tradition of hard work? It's right from the book. Take your Bible, go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 if you want an alliterated version, this would be my workmanship. My workmanship. The tradition of hard work. And uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, the Bible says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Preacher, what is he talking about? Look at verse 10. You ready for it? Here it is. For even when we are with you, this is the tradition, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. You know what a good old-fashioned Bible-based tradition is? You need to work hard. Hard work. It used to be you could say in this country that hard work pays off. Now look. Hard work may not always necessarily pay off, but it's still right. You're going to find times in your life, and many of you are way ahead of me on this, you're going to find times in your life you're going to work your fingers to the bone, as they would say, and it doesn't pay off, but it's the right thing to do. You know, we get, yeah, we get funny looks uh, uh, when the kids were coming up and they uh, would, would actually behave being funny. Uh, or, or when they see the boys work or something. You know why? Because you're in a generation that does not recognize children when they work. Uh, I know uh, Brother Larry has his boys work with him, and, uh, and it, uh, he could tell you story after story of people going, wow, well, I can't believe they work like that. Well, do you do it just for the camera? Oh, yeah, I just raised my kids to work so everyone can think I'm somebody. No, it's the right thing to do. Not only that, but in the generation that I was raised in, it was the only thing to do. And there, was no, there wasn't like, I don't think I will work today. It's like, no, you're working with the old man. But I'm telling you this, uh, this evening that hard work is a Bible-based tradition that Paul taught. Now listen, Paul preached and wrote about it here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. And verse 3, verse 10, look back to verse 8. He says, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail uh, night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Now, Paul could have passed the plate any time he wanted. He was an apostle. He deserved that. He was a pastor, a preacher. He deserved a paycheck. But many times, I'm getting ahead of myself, he didn't do it why he was being the right example to those he preached and taught. And that example was you need to go out and work. And hard work is a good tradition that you need to hang on to. you got to hang on to it. And I'm afraid this society, you know, you know the Lord's coming back at the rate we're going. Everybody wants to stay home. Now listen, I'm not talking about you put in your time and you put in your 30, you put in your 25, you put in 40 or however many years and you're retired. We're not talking about that. We're talking about those who are in the prime of their life that are choosing not to work and call themselves a Christian. Amen. And by the way, we don't live in the 50s. I wouldn't even raise in the 50s. This mindset that your wife must stay home, I'm not sure where it comes from. I'm not against my wife staying home. But she would kill me after three days, and she'd have to mar- marry all over again. But the point is this, in the society that... You're not going to do it? You wouldn't remarry. Amen. I feel really good now. <laughs> Amen. I just ruined the idea of a husband, I guess. <laughs> but here, here's the point I'm driving at. In Bible believing Christianity there's still a large group of individuals who will get after you if you're a working female. I'm I'm sorry, you know, Aunt May, I apologize, right? You know, what what's Beaver's mom's name? Leave it to Beaver. Mrs. whatever? Cleve? Well, Cleve? Sorry, I you know. You say you're being uh, you're being ridiculous, am I? You ever read the Proverbs thirty-one woman? She's not a Bible-believing woman. That woman's out there working. She's buying property. No Bible-believing man I ever met is going to go let his wife buy a piece of property. Not only that, she's buying land. She's selling land. She's like a Wall Street tycoon. Not only that, but she's a seamstress and man, she just work. she does it all. And you know what the Bible says in Proverbs thirty-one. Her husband doth safely trust in her. You know one of the things this country reaped from the 1950s, and I'm all about being a Bible believer, but you got to remember, if we don't take a good look at us, We're as good as dead with the door shut spiritually. And what this country produced between 1950 is a great deal of morality, but also produced, listen, ladies, it produced a generation of bitter women that were stuck in their houses all day taking care of children, going absolutely crazy. He gets home, and he wants his slippers, and he wants his pipe, and he wants his feet rubbed and all that stuff, and all she wants is a normal conversation. I remember when the the kids were real young, she called me someday, I'd be on ice cream router somewhere, wherever I was at, and she's like, I'm going to go crazy. I'm like, and I'm thinking, what is your problem? Well, this one's doing that, and this one's doing that, and I'm like, oh, she is on edge. (laughs) I got to work late, honey, sorry. (laughs) But I'm telling you, hard work is a tradition that you ought to hang on to. And this, it doesn't sound very biblical, does it? You're like, I wish you would just preach the Bible. I am preaching the Bible. You need to learn to work with your own hands. You know what Paul was preaching against? He was preaching against freeloaders. Why? Because in that early church, it was a communal thing. In Acts chapter 2, and everyone was selling their land. Remember Acts chapter 5, they lied about it. Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, they were out for the count for lying about what they sold the land for and given to the church. But it was a communal. It was a different time period. Now, aren't you glad we don't do that? Because if that's the case, then everyone you have to turn your checkbooks in to, to the finance committee. But everyone had things in common. And when Paul was preaching, he said, look, I don't want no freeloaders in this business is what he's saying. He says, you go out and you work with your own hands. And Paul led the way by example. He led the way in his preaching, and he led the way by writing that stuff in Scripture, and God kept it. I'm just saying today that a good tradition for you to hang on to is hard work. Paul preached about it here. Paul personified hard work. Wherever he went, Acts chapter 18, verse 3, the Bible says, And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. Paul was a tent maker. I find it interesting in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, it says that when Paul came to town to minister to the Corinthians, you know what he did? He abode with the workforce. He could have been put up in the Holiday Inn with the breakfast and the cinnamon rolls, But he's with the tent makers. And what's he doing? He's working for a living. He's starting a church. He's discipling converts. And he's showing up every single day to work. That's a good example right there. You know where preachers lose their edge, in my personal opinion? They lose their edge when they go full-time and they stop working. You know what I know from having to work? Every Monday morning, your alarm's going off. Or your phone. Who has an alarm clock anymore? I'm sorry, your phone's going off or Siri's telling you to get up or Bixby's yelling at whatever, right? And you know what? A preacher needs to know what that's like. Now, if this work grows uh, numerically at a pace where it actually requires me at least eight hours a day, which right now it doesn't, I know the time I put in, I know what I do, I know what I I'm not talking about that, but when this church grows numerically to the point where it requires eight hours of me a day, then I'll quit all the other stuff. But until then, we press on. Why? Hard work's a good tradition. Don't get rid of it. A preacher is doing himself a disservice if he doesn't work while he preaches. Now, Alfred Gibbs in 1901 wrote, A Preacher in His Preaching, and he said, You know what this country needs at such a time as this? It needs a generation of preachers willing to go and work so they don't have to require payment to preach. Now, look, you know what I believe. You know how I've taught you. You need to pay your preacher. Amen? You need to pay your preacher. And you need to do what you can. He's worth double honor if he does it right and he rules well. But let me tell you what, that's a great tradition. You got to hang on to it. Paul preached it. Paul personified it. And you know what Paul did? He prevented other churches from paying him so he could be a blessing to them while he worked. The Bible says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, he says, "...in labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless." What he's saying is, look, when we showed up to minister to you all, I was going to work laboring with my own hands. He says over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. You know what Paul was doing? He was getting out there and he was telling this fledgling church over here, he says, look, don't pay me because you can't afford it. I'm going to go out and work. And he's doing that for two reasons. He was doing that so he wouldn't be a burden on them and they could grow. And then he was doing that also so he could be example to them to show them what they should be doing. So there's no excuse. See, you see later down the road what happens is this church over here, and I I won't get into naming and all that, but the church that he said, uh, don't pay me over here, they got off to a start and they got growing. So later he circles back. He says, now it's time to pay up. (laughs) And he got that big offering and took it over uh, to the Macedonians. But hard work. Now, we can talk all day long about a lack of work ethic out in this world, amen? But the real shame is that the tested, tried, and true tradition of hard work is absent among even most of Bible-believing Christians. It's not just the lost people that have lost a work ethic. It's us. We show up two minutes before we're supposed to be there or two minutes after. Our priorities aren't right. Well, and like I said, hard work may not necessarily pay out anymore in this world like it used to, but it is a tradition that is worth hanging on to because it is right. Paul said in Galatians 6, 4, but let every man prove his own work. There's no freeloaders in the Christian life. You prove your own work. You say, well, that's talking about serving the Lord. See what I mean? works both ways. If you're lazy in your physical work, you'll be lazy in your spiritual work. All right, that's the tradition of hard work. How about number two, the tradition of a good testimony? Real simple tonight. Just some traditions worth hanging on to. The tradition of having a good testimony, uh, that's my conservatorship. You say, what's that? That's just something very valuable that I'm guarding. See, the work ethic, the hard work, that's my workmanship, and this is the conservatorship, the tradition of a good testimony. Look at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. You realize that the good tradition uh, listed here is just you having a good testimony wherever you go? You see, often we think about tradition like, uh, like in this church for years and years and years. It was the fifth Sunday they had communion. Every fifth Sunday... Pour the juice, pour the crackers, and they were terrible, and do that, and and stick the cup in there, and off you go. And the attendance on the fifth Sunday was always just huge. Why? It's religion. It's tradition. All right, the tradition of a good testimony. Acts chapter 15, uh, uh, the context there is 19 to 29, but look at verse 20. Peter says, but that we write unto them, these are Gentiles, that they may abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Look down to verse number 29, 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. All right, so Peter exhorts these Gentile new Christians to these things so that they will have a good testimony. This is not a prerequisite for salvation. you got to realize at this time that there's different things that they're dealing with here. This is the Council of Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem they're dealing with idol worship, so you have meat that's offered to idols. All right, the best way I can tell you is Uh, Is it a sin, let me finish before you hang me and crucify me, but is it necessarily something that's going to hurt you spiritually to go into a bar and drink a glass of milk? No, but it will hurt your testimony. See what I mean? That's about probably a terrible example, but uh, eating meat offered to idols, that's the same concept. So they'd they'd offer this meat to idols, and obviously the gods of wood and stone wouldn't eat the chicken wings or whatever they were putting out there, right? Well, you can't let a good chicken wing go to waste, so they gather them all up, reheat them up, and serve them at B-dubs, right? And he's like, look, don't eat, eat... Come on, that's kind of funny. You don't eat meat offered to idols. Why? Testimony's sake. And then he says there in verse 29, abstain from blood. Again, that's a thing connected with the law because the life of the flesh was in the blood. You're dealing with Judaizers at this time. You see what I mean? Then he says, abstain from things strangle. Another Levitical thing about purification. And then he says, and Peter says, abstain from fornication, verse 29. That's just keeping clean. Why? Because the Gentiles were known for their loose living. And he's saying, look, it's time for you to fly right and fly straight. And it's time for you to have a good testimony. You know what? That's a good tradition. A good tradition is not only hardworking Christians, but Christians with good testimonies. Peter's solid tradition of having a good testimony. You can see this thing all the way through the book of First Peter. Turn there with me. I'm going to go real quick through this thing. Book of First Peter. Uh, Peter writes about how to have a good testimony around lost people. Good te- in First uh, Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, look at verse 13. First Peter chapter two, verse 13. He says, "Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the kings the supreme or unto governors, verse 14, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evil-doers and for the praise of them that do well." So Peter writes all that stuff, how you can have a good testimony to this lost world and in your community. You say, what does that mean? You obey the law. You pay your taxes. You take the stupid signs out of your yard that are, that are vulgar towards authority. And if you don't and you call yourself a Christian, you're an idiot. I'm sorry. You're brutish. You're not a nice guy. And we should develop a whole new ministry called the ball bat ministry. But that would be this, just the same as what you're doing, so we can't do that. Amen. But you, Peter shows you right there how to have a good testimony around lost people in your community. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. He writes about how to have a good testimony in your own home. That seemed to be a difficult thing, doesn't it? Why? Everybody knows you so well, you cranky old buzzard. You see what I mean? It's hard to have a good testimony. Why? Because you blow it all the time in front of them, don't you? And what happens if you're not careful, you'll get calloused about it and you'll get desensitized by the old man and you'll expect everyone to eat your sin. But what you got to do is you got to make it right with them. So when you're off color and you blow it and you mess up, you fess up, and you sin against your family, you tell them, hey, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. You swallow your pride. Moms, dads, amen. Not just that you make the kids do it. Say you're Sorry. You're sorry. No, <laughs> tell them that you are sorry, right? You make them apologize, shouldn't we? Yeah. But here in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, Paul writes, uh, Peter writes about how to have a good testament uh, 3 1 through 9. All right, verse 1, you get the wives, they're in subjection. In verse 2, they're watching what they say. In verse 3, they're not focusing on what they wear. Uh, in uh, verse uh, 7, likewise. You see that word likewise? Paul's like, yeah, everything I just said, plus some more, guys. <laughs> Likewise, your husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor. All right? So you get to know your wife. You don't expect her to just cater to you all the time. You've got to get to know her. Uh, you treat her uh, like the weaker vessel and that you protect her from spiritual attack. How do you protect your wife from spiritual attack? You've got to get to know that book better than she does. It's no doubt in my mind that a man and a woman have gotten married before and a wife knows more about the Bible. If you're going to serve the Lord, man, you're going to have to know that book better than your wife does. Amen. You can't let all that stuff rest on her shoulders. Shame on you if you do. All right. And verse 8, you're what? You're being compassionate. You're being pitiful. You're being courteous. Easy to say, but hard to do in the home, isn't it? You ever just look at your kids and have pity? and Don't laugh. <laughs> You ever just look at your kids and say, my goodness, they have to grow up in this society? I remember when I was a kid, and I thought I had it rough. I didn't. <laughs> Man, I look at what the, my kids are going through. I'm like, good night. Like, my chapter of life was like out of, you know, a little house in the prairie, you know, with cars. <laughs> you grow up on a country road, you know, have to worry about all that stuff. Peter writes about how to have a good testimony while you suffer for Jesus Christ in the next chapter, 4, verse 12. See, Peter's concerned about your testimony. You say, why? Because he knows what it's like to blow it. He knows what it's like to deny Jesus Christ and then have to swallow all kinds of pride to come back into fellowship. Verse 12, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fire trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened. To you. you know what, something you really need to work on? Expect in trouble. Expect it. I didn't say well I didn't say welcome it <laughs> I said just expect it anticipate it and when it doesn't happen man you got something to praise the lord about <laughs> why we're appointed unto afflictions don't you realize that by now i mean you're just one phone call away from your knees giving out on you you're just one phone call away from about losing your your sanity temporarily you're one mile away from smacking a deer right you are, and you think life will never be the same. Well, not for that, dear, it won't. <laughs> Amen. But the Lord shows you. Peter shows you uh, through what he wrote. And finally, in First uh, Peter chapter five, I'm just trying to connect the dots here tonight. First Peter chapter five, verse one to five. You know what Peter tells you? He tells you how to have a good testimony amongst the brethren. We're kind of hard on each other, aren't we? you ever stop and think that maybe sometimes you expect more out of each other than you do of yourself? I had to learn that lesson. I'm still learning it in my marriage. You know, get all over her about something. I didn't hold myself to that standard. That's a hard one, ain't it? But uh, that's 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. Listen, as a Christian, having a good testimony and keeping a good testimony should be a tradition that you and I devote a great amount of time and care to. You say, why? Well, let me say it like this. Number one, a good testimony takes a lifetime to build and minutes to destroy. You spend your whole life building a great testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, not you, for Him, and then destroy it in minutes. And that's the truth, ain't it? Not only that, but if you blow your testimony in this community, the community will forgive you faster than the brethren will. I'm speaking from experience. This community will forgive you for being a dopehead. This this community will forgive you for being a lot of things. The brethren are the ones that struggle with forgiveness. Let me say this. If you blow your testimony, you just need to be ready immediately to admit it. Admit it, acknowledge it, and go to work rebuilding it. Don't wait. Testimony is a good tradition to keep. Hang on to it. And let me say this. Remember, the Lord forgives instantly. Amen? No doubt about it. Forgiveness is instantaneous. However, rebuilding your testimony will always take a lifetime of continuous building projects. Forgiveness is immediate. That's why you don't suffer the guilt. But you know what? It takes time for people to trust you again. It takes time for your spouse to get over the hurt that you caused her or caused him. It takes time for the the kids to rebound. Why? It takes time to recover from a bad testimony. But that doesn't mean because it's not what you think it is that you stop. You just got to keep working on it. You gotta kind of keep moving forward, like we preach. One foot in front of the other. Keep going. Keep growing. Ah, oh, you blew it. All right, admit it. Acknowledge it. Stand up. Dust yourself off. Forget the past. Philippians three thirteen. You got the forgiveness. that's under the blood. The Lord put you on parole for a while, doesn't He? He does. He forgave you, but He's got you on a leash—a real short leash—and you make it one day, and then you make it two, and then you make it three, and then you make it a week. And then a month, and people start to trust you again. Is this too close to the cotton? And the Lord begins to trust you again, and you keep going, and you keep rebuilding the test. That's your life. We're so filled with pride. So many times we blow it. We're like, oh, I could never come. You know why people don't come back to this church most of the time? Say because you're an idiot. No, no besides that, <laughs> that's a joke. you Thank you, brother. Love. Thank you for somebody for laughing. People don't come back to this church when things go south because of pride. They don't want to face it. Why? Here's what happens. You've been coming. You're here. You're faithful. They stop coming. They'll walk in the door. You'll look at them. They'll look at you. They'll recognize that you change, and they're not ready to deal with it. It's pride. It's swallowing that big lump that you know that you should be serving the Lord and getting some preaching, but you won't. What is that? Got to rebuild my testimony. That's a good tradition. I'll give you one more. Give you one more. The tradition of hard work, tradition of having a good testimony. These are real simple tonight. They're all all three right in the Bible. Paul and Peter taught them. And here's the one this is tradition of just being in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Just being in fellowship with Jesus Christ. I look at first Corinthians chapter eleven. First Corinthians chapter eleven. Now, I know some churches, they have traditions how they have services, and uh, I guess we've kind of developed somewhat of a tradition how we uh, do the Lord's Supper, and that's a good thing. You hang on to that thing. And uh, here's the thing. If it works, hold on to it, right? Hold fast that which is good. You say, how do you know it works? I'm telling you, it works. The way the Lord's allowed us to take part in doing the Lord's Supper and really slowing it down and focusing on Him and giving you time to act and giving you time to focus and giving you time to self-examine. It works. So what are you going to do? Going to hang on to it. I don't care if someone does it different. I'm glad they can do it different. I'm glad it works for them. But you know what? I've tried a lot of things that don't work for us. You say, well, what works for us? Not a whole lot. <laughs> but what we do, it works. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Look what Paul says. Paul says here, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Now the ordinance, uh, of course, is the Lord's Supper and baptism. So we won't talk necessarily about baptism, but that's another good one. But we'll talk about just the ordinance of being in fellowship. Fellowship. Now, one of the ways that you can strengthen, one of the ways that you can renew, one of the ways that you can rejuvenate and recalibrate your fellowship is by simply observing the Lord's Supper, but you've got to do it the right way. You've got to do it the right way. You know, John says that being in fellowship, it affects our joy. 1 John 1, 4, these things have I written unto you that your joy may be full. And He's talking about fellowship. If you're in fellowship with Jesus Christ, it produces joy. I guess that sure explains for the car and truckload of sourpuss Christian these days. You ever just meet Christian after Christian, no joy? I met good brothers and sisters in the Lord, love to death, man. You get around them, good grief, you gotta watch Dr. Phil for three days. Why? Just you ever talk to some Bible believers, and after you get done talking to them, you feel like your father or mother of the year award? You know, you've always had a negative approach on how you do things, and you listen to them, and you're like, you feel pretty good about yourself. (laughs) Say what? No joy? (laughs) That's a true story. But he says, these things have I written unto you that your joy may be full. And one of the ways you can renew your fellowship, restrengthen your fellowship, and like I said, and here's why we're coming down to this point here, is recalibrate, and that's what we really want to do tonight is just kind of recalibrate our fellowship a little bit. I didn't say it was wrong. I didn't say it was inordinate. I'm just saying maybe it just needs to be recalibrated a little bit, slow it down. You know, you get going so fast sometimes, just you just, you know, the old-timer preacher says it like this, accuracy over speed. And in the Christian life, I'd rather be accurate than fast. I'd rather be that tortoise that wins the race, slow and steady. You know, you got these Christian hares, H A R E, you know. They're bouncing over here and bouncing over there and bing, bang, bong, boom, all over the place. What are they doing? Nothing. They never even finish. I want to finish right. And if I'm going to finish right, I gotta recalibrate during the year. I gotta recalibrate my fellowship. Now let me give you this real quick. It'll go quick. In the Lord's Supper in First Corinthians chapter eleven. Uh our fellowship requires the right motive. Look at uh, chapter eleven, verses seventeen to twenty. Seventeen to twenty. It requires the right motive. It's not just blindly observing an ordinance. If you want to recalibrate, rejuvenate, re-strengthen, and renew your fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you got to make sure you came for the right reason. And listen, even if you didn't come for the right reason, you still can be here for the right reason. It just takes a few seconds. 11, 17, now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not. All right, so Paul's getting on them. Why? They had the wrong motive. They were coming to like dinner on the grounds instead of the Lord's Supper. And they were doing it to show off how wealthy they were and how much food. They you, ever go to the, you ever go to the church potluck, you know, and, and 50 of the gals brought casseroles, and there's always was that one joker that brings steak, right? And you're looking like, why would you bring that? They're just showing off. Just showing off. And uh, so you've got to have your motive, right? Verse 18, he says, For first of all, when you come together in church, I hear that there will be divisions among you. All right, You've got to have the right motive. Are you coming to church so people think you're spiritual? Or are you coming to church? And I believe this with all my heart. I believe that you all come here because you want to get something. That's a blessing. Uh, that is the blessing of having a small church, not filled with a bunch of false faces. Uh, let me say this in the Lord's Supper in verse 28, our fellowship requires self-examination. Not only the right motive, I'm here because I want to please the Lord. I'm here because I need help. I'm here because I need to get set straight. I'm here because I probably need to take care of some business, but I'm here because I need to examine me. Nobody else. Old-timer said, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. If you're here during the preaching and you're constantly thinking about other people, there is something wrong with you spiritually. When I hear preaching that is preaching, man, I feel so stinking low. I want to crawl, crawl under a rock sometime. Matter of fact, I don't like some preaching from preachers that I really like. Does that make sense? I'm like, oh, this is one of my friends. And, and they preach. And I'm like, I hate you. I mean, I hate your, what you said, but it was true. I just dislike it. Why? Because it revealed to me who I was. I need the right motive and I need to self-examine. Number three in the Lord's Supper, our fellowship requires in verse 31, self-judgment of sin. So we self-examine, just like you do at the workplace. If you're on a yearly system that looks at your performance, you have to examine yourself. But here you got to go a step further. You don't just write blank paragraphs so you get the 2%, right? Here in verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. You know what? I'd rather have the Lord get all over me like a bad habit than this world get after me. Matter of fact, I, I have learned, and I'm not being bodacious. When I, I have learned to appreciate the chastening hand of the Lord. But the Lord's Supper, our, it, our fellowship requires self-judgment of sin. So how do you do that? All right, when you sin, you take that thing to the Lord and say, I judge this sin as wrong. I judge it as wicked. I deserve to be in hell right now because of that sin, and you name it. You say, Lord, I confess my sin. Your word says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help me not to do it ever again. It's beset me long enough. I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I plead the atonement of the sacrifice of my sins at Calvary. Help me not to do it anymore. and Help me to please you. and Help me to serve you. Amen. And you go on. You judge it. You don't go, help me to do better. No, you're like, that sin, that one sin right there, I deserve to be in hell for it. What I said to my wife, what I said to my Brother, what I said to my sister, how I acted towards them, I deserve to be in hell right now and never get out. He said, that's kind of harsh, don't you think? No. No, that's right. That's self-judgment. Can you imagine if we'd be hard on ourselves as we are others? We would probably improve our relationship with the Lord. Now let me close with this. In the Lord's Supper, our fellowship requires continual remembrance. Continual remembrance. In verse 24, it's remembrance of his broken body. And when he would given thanks, he break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Not only that, but remembrance of his shed blood. You see that in verse 25. Are you thankful for the blood tonight? I'm telling you what, that blood was shed for you. That blood was shed for me. And, man, you ought to plead the blood of Jesus Christ when you get into fixes and you get into places in your Christian life that you just can't move past. It's not a wild card, but I'm telling you, that's the most important thing in your Christian life. Plead the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. Plead the sacrifice for your sins. And not only that, uh, remembrance of the sinless Savior. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do shew the Lord's death till he comes. Now there's just three biblical traditions that are worth hanging on to. Hard work, amen, a good testimony, and just simply being in fellowship with the Lord, being right with the Lord. Now that's not hard, is it? That's something we can get a hold of tonight.